Welcome to The Lowdown, a podcast of news and ideas from the Columbia Alumni Association. Today we're going to talk about medical tourism, the subject of Sasha Isenberg's report, Outpatients, the Astonishing New World of Medical Tourism. We're going to hear Sasha and the director of the Columbia Global Policy Initiative, Michael Doyle, talk about what's driving people to travel around the world, across nations, and their singular healthcare systems to seek out more affordable, more timely, and sometimes just more convenient medical procedures. But first, we're going to hear from the person who made Sasha's book, and several more like it, possible. Nicholas Lemon. Lemon served as the dean of the Columbia School for Journalism for two terms. And after deciding not to serve a third, Columbia President Lee Bollinger challenged Lemon to start a project that was entirely new. What resulted was Columbia Global Reports. Here's Nicholas. He came to me and said, okay, well, if you're not going to do a third term... Let's start a news organization here at Columbia that will cover the world. And with that as a very unspecific challenge from him, I, with my colleagues, came up with this specific idea, which we did as, you know, a way to fill a niche that isn't being filled. These books are longer than a magazine article, shorter than a conventional book, um, outside the news cycle tend to be fresh and undercovered subjects. Global reports are in-depth studies of globalization. Each report covers a different aspect of our expanding global economy and is released in an incredibly readable, attractively bound form. What Nicholas found, though, was that hiring writers for this demanding new project presented something of a challenge. It's actually quite hard to find writers who can execute what we need, um, which is you have to sort of hit three targets at once. One, you have to be a good and intrepid reporter who's willing to get on a plane and go on site and do a lot of interviewing. So a lot of people who write very good, accessible material about globalization and think tanks and so on, that's the deal breaker for them is I don't want to get on a plane and, and go somewhere and, and interview people um, and then the second thing is you have to have the sort of analytic chops where you can describe an issue in policy terms and not just in yarn terms that knocks out a lot of working journalists who are willing to do the reporting and then the third is some kind of literary or storytelling skill so that the book is a pleasure to read and it's fun it moves along, it has a beginning, middle, and an end, it has characters, the prose is a pleasure. So there just aren't that many people who can do those three things in one project. So we tracked down two of these unique, talented writers. The first is Atusa Araxia Abrahamian. Atusa is a graduate of Columbia College and the School of Journalism, and has been a reporter for the New York Times, New York Magazine, and Al Jazeera. Her global report was The Cosmopolites, the coming of the global citizen. But I'll let her explain it. So it, it looks at the, the state of, of national citizenship in, in a globalized world. And the way that I approached the subject um, was by looking at the markets for buying and selling citizenship. It might surprise you to hear that almost a uh, half dozen countries will readily sell their citizenship totally legally 
above board um, and you know often through middlemen or brokers that enable the transaction. And uh, what I wanted to do after discovering that this market existed and that it wasn't just a black market, that it was pretty legit in a lot of ways, um, also not legit in other ways, I wanted to look at uh, what this meant uh, for citizenship, what this meant for national belonging. What does it mean when you couldn't buy a passport the same way that you would buy a pair of shoes? I'm exaggerating, of course, but you can buy a passport, a citizenship, uh, with an all-cash transaction. So this seemed to challenge a lot of long-held notions about what it meant to be a citizen of a country. Um, it, the, the transactional nature of it rubs a lot of people the wrong way. I'm pretty agnostic on that front, mostly because I have three citizenships that I don't really feel entitled to or really connected to. Um, and that's another thing. I think as people move around more, as um, families are more mixed uh, ethnically, nationally, religiously, etc., uh, you're not going to see the same kind of monolithic identification with the nation state that maybe you did 50, 60, 70 years ago. Um, and yeah, so that's my personal experience with this draw me to this, drew me to the subject. I grew up in Geneva and Switzerland, surrounded by diplomats, UN people, and um, I have Swiss citizenship, Canadian citizenship, and Iranian citizenship. But I, you know, despite living in Geneva for 18 years, I was in international school. People moved around a lot. And I didn't, I realized after I graduated, I don't know all that many Swiss people. It's super weird. Um, I was born in Canada. I've never lived there. I have some family there, but I, I barely ever go there. Um, I, I just happened to be born there. And my parents were born in Iran, which makes me an Iranian citizen. Uh, I don't speak Farsi. I, I think it's a fantastic country, but I don't really go there either very often. Um, and, you know, ironically, I've been in New York for almost 12 years, and I, I can't even vote here on the potholes or on, you know, local stuff. Um, so I, there, there are some very very limited number of things I have to say in. There's a thing called participatory budgeting where you can anyone who's a resident can vote on, you know, are we going to expand the sidewalk or um, do it, make a dog park or what have you. So I voted in that last week. But, um, yeah, I, I think that that's notion of citizenship needs to be re reconsidered and reevaluated for the 21st century. For Atusa, it's hard to say if publishing this story would have been possible without an initiative like Columbia Global Reports. I think that any source of funding and support for journalists who want to write long things is inherently pretty great, um, especially as these sources of funding are drying up. A lot of places say, oh, we are global or we have an international perspective, and that's actually not true. I think Colombia really does have a global scope. I mean, the number of countries I went to and reported on in, in, for the Cosmopolites, I don't think I could have done that anywhere else. And I don't think it's just a budget thing. I think it's a real depth of experience on part of the editors and also a commitment to looking at the whole world, not just the world through American eyes, not just the world. The second unique and talented writer you're about to hear from is Sasha Isenberg. As part of a talk that was held at the Columbia Law School, he laid out the subject of his medical tourism report with specificity without losing sight of its larger historical context. I think at its simplest, we could call medical tourism the, the practice of traveling for care or treatment. Um, there are some categorical issues as to whether 
you know, what people call wellness tourism, which would be sort of spa or recreational travel uh, accounts. But what I was really looking at was, was people traveling for, for medical or in some cases dental care, but, but um, effectively, uh, you know, real medical procedures. You can find examples of people having traveled for medical purposes for thousands of years going back to, you know, uh, almost all of the early spa towns of the world, even before we had uh, hospitals were were basically examples of, of you know, Baden Baden was was a, a medical tourism destination, um, but the kind of modern era of of medical tourism uh, effectively starts in the 1970s with uh, advances in in jet travel, and so you know when we think about um, stuff then, you know, I, I think we're often thinking of of you know, wealthy Saudis who are flying to Munich to get uh, specialized procedures that they can't get at home, or... Uh, the Shah of Iran, remember? Yes, yeah. Uh, you know, heads of state coming to the Mayo Clinic, you know, it was, it was very much uh, an elite uh, uh, um, action, usually from people uh, coming from... <coughs> People with individual means, but coming from a place with with sort of limited medical infrastructure, especially for specialized procedures. Um, what has happened recently, and this is really the the story that that I try to illustrate in the book, is is the kind of democratization of access to to this practice of traveling for for care and uh, uh, and. Many cases, you know, I think that medical tourism has become a practice that's, you know, widely available to um, the middle or upper middle classes uh, across the world. One of the more interesting consequences of this democratization of health services is that people in Europe are traveling to Hungary specifically for certain kinds of medical treatment. With all the robust healthcare systems in the continent, like those of France and many Scandinavian nations, why are Europeans choosing Hungary? Hungary doesn't have a particularly sophisticated um, medical system uh, compared to certainly other places in Central Europe. It, it does compare to other places in Eastern Europe, and this is where the the identity crisis of, of Hungarians um, becomes acute. But uh, it does happen to have a surfeit of um, fairly well-trained dentists, and this is sort of the commingling of two historical traditions. Um, Russian medical education was fairly good, and there's there there remains a legacy of of, of you know decent medical education in the country that that comes from that, and um, one of the consequences of of uh, a Soviet-style uh, centralized healthcare system was um, uh, a supply of, I mean, there was freely, event, freely available dental care until the early 90s, and it meant that you had a fair number of, of well-trained dentists, and compared to some more advanced medical specialties, you know, the fundamentals of dentistry haven't changed um, as much in a couple of decades. And so you, you actually have a, um, a, a labor market that, is, that has a fair number of dentists. Um, and starting in the mid 90s, well, one of the things that, that Hungary did after the um, uh, after the fall of the Iron Curtain, after the the, the, the end of the communist system, was uh, as they um, 
change their medical system, they happen to, to effectively privatize um, the dental trade. And so all of a sudden in the 1990s, you had dentists who um, uh, were forced or had the opportunity to become more entrepreneurial than, than other doctors. All right. So some seriously positive effects seem to have resulted from the old Soviet system. Well-trained medical professionals and positive cultural attitudes toward centralized universal healthcare systems. These are all good things, right? Michael Doyle, however, points out that these things can start to get complicated very quickly. There are some things we should worry about from the standpoint of what Sasha described as one of the great accomplishments of the 20th century, national welfare systems and healthcare systems. We in the US are one of the last to get there, uh, but it's a really important accomplishment of making people's lives more humane and secure, less subject to gross accident, disrupting all your life plans. And this has some negative consequences for it, that is having a, a market in, in medical services. Uh, one is that because the foreigners will often come in with more disposable income, uh, they can afford to travel, and they come in with higher either benefits from their health services or just income they can spend, they sometimes crowd out locals. And the local medical providers, and Sasha demonstrates this in his book, will sometimes privilege foreigners for the revenues they bring in, making the waiting list for procedures for the locals longer. And, and that's a negative. Because these locals, in most cases, have paid taxes either for, to support the national health system. And even if, they, even if it's a more privatized health system, all medical systems are subsidized. The education of doctors is never fully paid for. The building of hospitals is usually urban, civic projects, and they're now being used for foreigners. So we're, we're, not, at, we're not shifting the full cost that are borne by the locals onto the foreigners. So that's a, that's, that's a, a negative and can adversely affect the quality of their care because of access. On the other hand, it's, it's, and again, this is in Sasha's book, it, it's not all negative. Uh, uh, if you have a well-planned system, you can use the higher fees that you charge to foreigners to cross-subsidize locals. You can improve your national health care welfare system if it's well-planned. Another factor uh, is that if you're losing all your best doctors and nurses who are moving to Paris and London and Frankfurt and New York because of higher incomes, you can give them a higher income in Budapest or in Sofia or you name it by having foreign wealthy patients come to them. And that again will help preserve your, your national health system. And the last thing is that the problem of rare diseases and rare ailments. Now, from a global point of view, specialization and division of labor makes some sense. There are some diseases that not that many have or some ailments that not that many people have. It's good to have medical personnel and clinics specialize. Uh, you never want to come in as a patient for a doctor's first procedure on that problem. You don't want to be that guinea pig. You want to be on his 500th procedure, all of which have been very successful. And so scale economies and division of labor, from a global point of view, I think does make some sense. And having patients travel to uh, facilities elsewhere is a way to facilitate that. So the picture is mixed, good and bad. It's not a simple story. The tension between free trade and universality, 
not to mention the webs of complex healthcare regulations that must be sorted out. Is it possible that a system might be created to accommodate it all? The panelists aren't quite sure, but they agree that the closest model of such a system we have today would be the European Union. The EU is beginning to create systems whereby you can charge your local health provider, private or public, for a service that you get cross-border. And with that comes the panoply of EU regulations. I'm not sure how far they've they've gone or whether there's redress procedures attached to it. But the European Union, because of the unique integration of that region, seems to be moving in that direction. But the the rest of the world is not like Europe. It's not like the EU. Whatever its problems, it's still the most integrated region in the world. I think one should begin to explore bilateral or regional agreements that open up on a limited basis uh, the healthcare provided across borders with potentially some regulation attached to it so that you could create uh, what, what corporations have already done for themselves in something called bilateral agreements, bilateral investment uh, treaties, allows them to appeal abuses some state attempts to curb their business, they then appeal to a tribunal to get redress for those restrictions. Something similar in the medical world might be thought of, these bilateral and regional uh, tribunals to deal with you know, abuses along the lines that we've noted. And the, the, the remarkable thing about the EU case is how even, I, I sort of recount the some of the wrangling in, in Brussels over an effort to to write a Europe-wide set of regulations that would um, facilitate, and uh, I apologize for using the word, but they use it, medical tourism. Um, and and so it basically where we are now, is, as Michael suggests, is that you can, if you're an EU citizen, you can be, or EU resident, you can be reimbursed uh, for any procedure in another EU country at the rate at which um, you would be at home. Uh, it has, governments have an obligation to facilitate that through basically information. And um, But still, that is a far lower level of integration than almost any other good or service that moves across European borders. It is, um, it is remarkable how limited, given, you know, in, in the EU's founding documents, like a lot of document, like a lot of trade packs, um, specifically carves out medical practice and the way it carves out some education and the way it carves out some uh, law enforcement and criminal justice as, as, as exempt from trade. Part of the reason is that um, we could get to the place very quickly where uh, healthcare regimes are the last vestige of the nation state in Europe. Um, you know, you, you, uh, we're, we're getting to the point where Europe has uh, obviously a, a single currency, um, a, a single diplomatic core uh, and foreign policy, a single um, uh, military policy and, and, and military force. Um, regulations for basically every other aspect of, of uh, business, health, welfare. Um, uh, you have a Supreme Court that, that synthesizes the notion of, of rights and liberties across, across states, and yet I have not heard a single person um, anywhere in European politics claim that the next natural step should be that there is a single-payer system that is unified for all 300 million Europeans. Um, and so we could end up, I think, very shortly 
in, in a place where the only thing that distinguishes the Netherlands from Belgium, from France, is the fact that they have radically disparate healthcare systems. Um, much as it was fairly easy, uh, just as a matter of integration, for the US and Canada to sign the North American Free Trade Agreement uh, 24 years ago, but um, even the, you know, the most wild-eyed uh, uh, globalist hasn't come up with any idea of how the United States and Canada could, could possibly, at a governmental level, reconcile their two healthcare systems, because healthcare systems are fundamentally irreconcilable. There are you know, a whole number of policy trade-offs that are made at some point in designing a system, and it is not just a matter of, you know, you lower tariffs down to a certain level and then everything can move freely, or you, you know, get rid of, of certain visa restrictions and, and people can move freely. Um, but, you know, as, as we saw in this country just in the last few years, uh, undertaking a project of healthcare reform, um, the number of participants in this and the number of, of, of policy trade-offs required is, is amazing within one country and uh, it's not clear, you know, once you start messing with one end of that project um, so that it can synthesize with another country's incentives, regulations, requirements, um, where you stop. Clearly, there's hope for a better system, but not a very clear way toward it. As Doyle lays out, even the current restrictive systems are designed to account for and adjust to globalization. The end result could be a healthcare system that is truly universal. It'd be interesting if, in fact, the last vestige of, of the nation state is, takes place in medicine. That would be a, a fascinating outcome. The only thing I would add to that is that there's a counterforce at the at the level of global rules that opens up the doors to increase globalization. This may be the sector that resists it, but the rules all lean in that direction. If I had to guess anything that could get through our Congress, it's likely to be a trade bill. Probably nothing else will get done in the Congress, uh, in this concurrent Congress that we have. It might be the, the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and there's a coalition at work on an Atlantic one. Yeah, that's still to come, and if, of course, Trump is elected or Bernie is elected, that will go with uh, a different political constellation, making it less likely. But there's a powerful center uh, that leans in the direction of globalization at the trade level, and it's built into the rules. Uh, in order to stay in the WTO in 1995, you had to also sign up with the General Agreement on Trade and Services. So opening up the service sector to the logic that also produced the expansion of trade. Now, as Sasha mentioned, uh, uh, public services and health services specifically are carved out. That are, they're not required to be put on the table for negotiation. That's a matter of discretion if you want to open up your health services or other public services under the GATS arrangement. Uh, but there are still some restrictions. Let's say that you want to uh, attract uh, a foreign hospital to come set up in your country, but you want to extract something for, from them, a benefit to your uninsured, so that you say that 25% of the patients in this foreign hospital uh, have to be uninsured locals, a way to cross-subsidize, which is a, a good thing that happens in some of this medical tourism. 
Uh, you can't do that, excuse me, you can't do that unless you also require your local hospitals to also cover 25% of uninsured, or you sign a special schedule agreement under the GATS that you have negotiated this exception for foreign hospitals. But to do that, you're going to have to promise some concessions in other areas of services. You have to give something to get that privilege to discriminate. Sasha's report is called Outpatients, the Astonishing New World of Medical Tourism. And Atu says is the Cosmopolites, the coming of the global citizen. Those and more reports are available at globalreports.columbia.edu. This podcast was produced by the Columbia Alumni Association. Columbia University is a mecca of great ideas in one of the world's greatest cities. And with more than 320,000 Columbia alumni who are leaders in every field imaginable and spread across the world, the Columbia Alumni Association brings you the latest musings, updates, and insights from Columbia University. Learn more about the Columbia Alumni Association at alumni.columbia.edu. And to get even more news and ideas from Columbia, check out thelowdown.alumni.columbia.edu. Thank you.